All right, today is week number two in our series on David, David's rise to power, David's life. But in order to appreciate David and his extraordinary faith, what I want to do today is back up and look at Israel's first king, King Saul, and his extraordinary failure. The demise, the fall of Saul is, I think, one of the most sobering stories in the Bible. But also, as I hope you'll see this morning, one of the most helpful. You see, in the, in the morning of Saul's life, in the morning of his reign, Saul was a good man. He was a spiritually minded man. He was a, a, a good king. He was a man who didn't seek office, but it sought him. Yet Saul was one of the five suicides in the Bible. And over time, his life not only spiraled out of control, it spiraled downward. Tremendously insecure, power hungry, became a murderous tyrant. And so the question we want to wrestle with today on the front end of this series is what in the world happened to Saul? Uh, what went wrong? Why? And how is it that seemingly normal people can engage in such evil and destructive acts? I think there are three answers to those questions. Really three different levels of answers, as you'll see as, as we go, that are right here in 1 Samuel. So grab a Bible, turn on your Bible, grab a Bible in front of you, and turn with me to chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15, it's about page, around page 280 in the Bibles in front of you. And we're going to look at this very interesting section that starts in verse 10. Verse Samuel 15, verse 10, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I am grieved that I made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument. Now notice this in his own honor, and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? And Saul answered, Well, the soldiers. <laughs> they brought them from the Amalekites, and they spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. Uh, by the way, I think this is one of the great Old Testament statements of grace. So if you're writing in your Bible or, or making notes, grace statement right here. We wonder where is grace in the Old Testament? It's right here. 
God anointed Saul to be king, even though he was small in his own eyes. Verse 18, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy these wicked people, those wicked people, the Amalekites, make a war on them until you have wiped them out. I'll come back to that. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Oh, but I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites, and I brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from their plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance, your arrogance, Saul, like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command in your instructions. I was afraid. I was afraid of the people, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. Now this is a sobering section of God's word. This is not Saul's first failure to obey God. He disobeyed God tragically in chapter 13, two chapters earlier as well. So the question is why? Why did things go so wrong with this guy? Answer number one. Because in the crunch of life, he failed to take God seriously. In the press and the pressure, he disobeyed. He disobeyed God's word. The word for obey here used in this chapter is literally the word listen. Saul failed to listen to God's word, to listen to God's voice. So instead of totally destroying the Amalekites, as God had commanded, he spared their livestock and he spared their king. Now, let me press pause because we read this and we think, uh, this is terrible. How could a good God be so vicious? And I want to say to you, well, we need to put this in a biblical historical context. You see, the Amalekites were a brutal, slaughtering people. What they had done to Israel, Israel's uh, women and children in the past, was just awful. So God comes to Saul and says, Saul, the time of the Amalekites is done. I'm tired of this after centuries. And your task is an act of justice, but it must not be an act of domination. So the way I want you to deal with these brutal people is I want you to use force, but unlike the kings of the surrounding nations, I do not want you in any way to profit from this. 
This, by the way, uh, gets at a biblical basis for just war. But what God is saying to Saul is your act is to be an act of justice, not an act of domination. Uh, you see, you may be the king, but you are my king, and my kings behave in different ways. Uh, they don't go to war to profit. They, they, they go to war as my ambassadors of justice. But Saul refused. He didn't listen to God's voice. And he kept the king alive. Why? Maybe so he could be the king of a king. And then he let uh, uh, Israel enjoy newfound wealth. These assets, these animals, that's what animals were back in that day. Uh, so here's the point. First Samuel is about the search for the good king, the true king. The king who will love his people. Uh, the king who will lay down his life for his people. According to God's word, the good king is one whose people prosper. Uh, the, the king who is humble, who is, who is spiritual, uh, who is godly, who reflects the coming messianic king. But Saul here becomes like every other king. Saul becomes an Amalekite. No different. And an act of what was to be an act of justice becomes an act of imperialism. Domination. Plunder. And because he disobeyed God, because he refused to listen to God's word, because in the crunch of life, he failed to take God seriously. And when that happens, it's just a matter of time until you're not taking God at all. You, you see, obedience, or selective obedience, it isn't really obedience, it's just spiritual convenience. Oh, this is convenient for me, God. And God hates that. Saul lost the throne. And, and there's a better way. So let's say you're stressed financially. Things are tight with your money. And you're tempted. But you're not going to cheat. You're not going to steal. You're not going to lie. Because you live in submission to God. Or let's say you're mad. You're ticked off because you've been wronged. I mean really wrong. Maybe you've been rejected. Maybe you've been overlooked. Something uh, somebody said, something somebody did, and, and you're tempted. But in your obedience to the living God, you're not going to lash out. You're not going to strike back. You're going to pray. Or maybe you're single and you're lonely, or you're married and you're lonely. And you're really tempted. But you're not going to capitulate to false intimacy. You're going to fight through to purity. Uh, you, those of you that are students, uh, you young adults, you millennials, maybe everyone around you is drinking, maybe they're dabbling in drugs, maybe they're partying all the time. Maybe even your church friends are soft on their commitment to Christ, their commitment to church, their commitment to the kingdom. And you feel the crunch, man. You feel the pressure. You feel that peer pressure. But you know that peer pressure is not a, a, a pass to compromise. 
And so you don't. You obey God. God takes the obedience and the disobedience of his people seriously. Do you really want to, uh, to forfeit the blessing of God, trample on uh, the grace of God, open the door to the discipline of, of God? Because obedience is hard. Obedience is always hard. That's part of life in Jesus Christ. So the first reason Saul failed is because in the crunch, in the press, he failed to take God seriously. He disobeyed. There's a second reason. And here we go uh, really a little more beneath the surface, and and we go to a, a, a second level, if you will. Why did Saul disobey? Why did he do that? And the answer is he disobeyed because of self-deception. His disobedience was due to self-deception. It was due to the enormous capacity of the human heart for self-deception. Now, this isn't unique to me. Uh, uh, Others point out in verse 19, look at verse 19, when Samuel confronts Saul and and asks, why did you not obey Saul? Why did you pounce on the plunder? And Saul then counters in verse 20, well, I did obey. What? Saul says, "I, I, I, I did obey. Literally, it's I did listen to God's voice. Then what Samuel says next, beginning in verse 22, is profound. He says, you may have listened, but you didn't hear. You may have listened, but you really didn't listen. You may think that you know, but you really don't know. You may think that you're okay, but you're really not okay. Because you really didn't obey. And so Samuel, beginning in verse 22, says to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed than the fat of rams. And he calls what Saul did as rebellion. He calls it divination. He calls it arrogance. He calls it idolatry. Now, do you see what's going on? Saul heard, but he didn't grasp. He heard, but he didn't hear. He heard, but he ignored. He heard, but it didn't sink in. And he didn't heed. In other words, you can listen to God and even think you're listening to God, but not really listen. And we call this self-deception. Self-deception is the capacity of the human heart, your heart, my heart, to hide truth from itself because it's too painful. It's too hard. It's too uncomfortable. And why does this matter? Well, it matters because people will tell you this isn't why we do the terrible things we do, but let me say that differently. This isn't the terrible thing we do, but self-deception, your self-deception, my self-deception is, is why we do them. 
it gets under our disobedience. It's behind our, beneath our disobedience. So in other words, we are people who, who have a way of justifying wrong because we don't want to know. It's too hard. We hide truth from ourselves because it's too painful. It's denial. Now let me give you a couple examples, and then I'll tell you a story. A friend comes to you and says, you know, I'm really worried about your daughter. I think your daughter has an addiction. And you immediately say, oh, oh no, she, she's just having fun, or, or uh, she's just going through a, a, a phase right now. And, and the reality is the truth is too painful for you. Maybe you drink too much. Maybe you work too much. Or you're too easily angered, or you flirt too much, or you eat too much, or you don't eat enough. <laughs> uh, maybe you dabble in things that are dark, or maybe you spend way too much time uh, with people that are unhealthy and people that are taking you in a, in a wrong direction. And all along you tell yourself, well, well man, I got a good job, or I'm, I'm getting good grades, or I, I'm a good citizen, and I certainly don't do some of the things those really bad people do, and the reality is it's self-deception. The truth about yourself is too hard for you to face. Because our hearts have an enormous capacity to hide truth from ourselves. Another pastor um, I heard um, tells this story. It's the end of World War II. The Allies are coming in, they're liberating Europe, and they come to a little town with a concentration camp right next to it. And they go in, and they're still prisoners that are alive because the Nazis were too busy over the last couple of days when they knew the end was coming, trying to incinerate all the dead bodies of all the prisoners they had gassed and killed. But they were unsuccessful, so their dead bodies all over. General Patton comes into the town, into the concentration camp. And what was his nickname? Blood and Guts. And he looks at the dead bodies and he vomits. And he learns from the prisoners that the Nazi guards used to go into the little town at night to drink, to carouse, socialize with the townspeople. So he calls the townspeople together, and he says, did you know about this? And they said, no, we, we didn't know about this. And he said, well, okay then, but you're going to help me bury all the dead bodies. So the townspeople come with the mayor and his wife, and they proceed to bury all the dead bodies. Two days into that, the mayor and his wife hang themselves. And they need, leave a note. And the note says, we knew, but we didn't know. Saul knew, but he didn't know. 
often we know. But we don't know because it's just too painful. And so we rationalize. And what's so interesting here in, in this passage is that Saul actually rationalizes in a couple of ways. One of the ways he copes, one of the ways he justifies his behavior, one of the ways he, he rationalizes is by blaming others. So over and over he says, well, it was the soldiers, like in verse 15. And actually the Hebrew behind that English soldiers is a more um, vague uh, pronoun, they. Well, they, who, you know, whoever it was, they did it. Saul is the king, he's the commanding officer of Israel's army, and he blames the soldiers. This is the husband blaming his wife or blaming his stress for his late night pornography addiction. This is the daughter who goes through her life blaming her anger on her dad. We know, by the way, don't we, that uh, people don't make you angry. You choose to become angry. This is the, the, the man who blames his work situation on his domestic violence. By the way, three women a day in the United States die because of domestic violence. It's self-deception. It's shifting the blame because the truth about yourself is just too hard. It's too painful. And that's one of the ways Saul copes. A, a, a second way he copes in this passage, and that's why I just love the word of God. The word of God is so relevant. His Saul hides behind religion. Look at verse 21. He tries to appease Samuel by saying, oh, Samuel, we kept back the animals because we're going to have a gigantic worship service and we're going to invite everybody in the whole country and we're going to have this worship celebration and, and we're going to have this victory celebration and we're going to sacrifice some of the best of the animals uh, uh, to God. And Samuel, by the way, you're invited. This is a gang member saying, yes, I kill people, but I go to confession. Uh, this is the guy who sleeps with his girlfriend, who treats the people at work terribly, but he tells himself it's okay because he goes to church. He believes in God. This is the notion that I believe in God, I'm spiritual, I'm religious, so it's okay. But Samuel says, no, it's not okay. To heed God's voice and to obey him is infinitely more important than any sort of religious veneer. And we rationalize and we blame others and we hide by, uh, behind our, 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 our religion because our hearts excel at hiding the truth from us. 
So at one level, Saul loses the throne because of his disobedience. But underneath that, he is disobedient because of his self-deception. But there's a third answer, and frankly, a third level beneath both of those. And so we ask the question, well, then why was he so self-deceived? And again, how does a guy that starts out so well do such horrible, evil things? And the answer is Saul never owned and throttled his fear. His insecurity. His feelings of being small. You see, if we're going to deal with our tendency, your tendency, my tendency to to self-deception... We must ask ourselves the question, well, what are the areas where we tend to do this? Well, what are those dark corners where I, I, I want to hide the truth? And, and you can usually tell by how you react. And you, maybe you want to invite somebody else into that process and say, hey, hey, what, what, what do you see? Uh, but we're, if, if we're going to move through this and, and beyond this and not be destroyed by this, we've got to know those, those areas where the truth is too painful and the truth, well, we just don't want to hear it. And I want you to see it for Saul. Look at verse 24. When Saul says, I was afraid of the people, what he is saying is, I desperately need people to approve of me, to like me, to respect me. To help me get over this feeling of being small. That's why he took the crazy step back in verse 12 to build this monument in Carmel to his honor. He desperately needed people to approve of him. He he feared the disapproval of others. He feared isolation. He feared disapproval. And so the painful reality that Saul couldn't face is he deeply, deeply feared rejection. He was small, insecure in his own eyes. And that insecurity, that fear fueled his self-deception and his self-deception fueled his disobedience. Saul lived in bondage to fear, and now we're getting to the bottom of this. In bondage to fear, in bondage to insecurity. And the problem with, with fear is we promise according to our hopes, but we always perform according to our fears. Now, Saul didn't fear spiders, he didn't Uh, fear war, uh, but man, he feared disapproval. And this type of fear, and there's many different flavors of fear, this type of insecurity had become a a, a parasite and had fed and fed and fed on the host of his unbelief. Fear is walking by sight. What is fear? It's walking by sight, not by faith. It's overinflating something or, or someone and deflating God. It's being, for Saul, it's being concerned about his image. 
instead of his obedience. His image more than his obedience. His reputation more than his character. His appearance more than his heart. The reason fear not is the most repeated command in the Bible is because fear is our mo- one of our most basic and toxic struggles. We feel small. Fear is why Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, lied multiple times about Sarah, his wife. It's why 10 of the 12 spies, almost all the spies, refused to uh, recommend taking the promised land. Fear is why Peter, when he's walking on water in the very presence of Jesus, sinks and later denies Jesus. And fear is what doomed Saul. This horrible, deep-seated insecurity that I'm small. And this fear of disapproval uh, was like a coiled snake that wrapped itself tighter and tighter and tighter around Saul, squeezing out all vestiges of confidence in God. And if Saul teaches me anything about fear, he teaches me that fear is no respecter of gender. No respecter of position, no respecter of status, no respecter of competence. The king of Israel was the most insecure person in Israel. Fear drove Saul's self-deception. And Saul's self-deception drove his disobedience. Level one, level two, level three. And so, what's the antidote? And here I want to wind it up. What's the antidote? This is why I love verse 17. Look at verse 17 again. Samuel says, although you were once small in your own eyes, a great metaphor of insecurity and fear, Did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord, the Lord, the Lord anointed you king over Israel. Samuel is saying, Saul, you were a nobody. You knew you were a nobody. Uh, But God graced you. God loved you. Uh, God chose you to be king. He gave you the spirit to empower you. All of that is wrapped up in this phrase, he anointed you. So the antidote to fear, the antidote to being small in your own eyes is resting in God's love, God's grace. This side of the cross, resting in the anointing God gives us in Jesus Christ, the righteousness, the forgiveness, the eternal life that all comes to us even though we don't earn it and we don't deserve it because of who Jesus is and what he has done. So the antidote to this kind of being small, feeling small, insecurity, fear, is taking the focus off yourselves and focusing on God's love in Jesus Christ, his grace. And that's right here in verse 17. So verse 17, as I said earlier, points to God's grace. It it, it points to God's grace, coming grace in, in Jesus Christ. 
And the antidote uh, to these dark areas in our life is, is to continue to identify those areas and then continually preaching the gospel to those areas where truth is hard. Where we feel insecure, where we come up short where we struggle, where our reactions are not what we want them to be. We continually preach God's grace, God's love in Jesus Christ to those areas that we have identified as painful, as off-center, as unbelieving. And when you and I understand that Jesus Christ, who was infinitely big, became small, uh, abandoned, rejected, crucified, because he loves you that much, uh, so that uh, uh, you and me who are inherently small might become infinitely and eternally big and great in his sight when we see that and understand big, small, in order that the small might become big. And when we take that in and breathe that in, it changes everything for us. It's the gospel. It's grace. It's Jesus and his love for you. Let me say it this way. If Jesus and his love for you is how you know you are secure, uh, how you know you are approved, how you know in the language of this passage, big or, or great, then you know what? Then you can handle bad news. You can handle disappointment. You, you can handle rejection. Because at the end of the day, you know God loves you. He gave a son for you. But if your esteem, if your security is in your kids or your job or your money or your appearance or your relationships, if those are your monuments and they get attacked, then you can't handle that information. And you deny it. So look. Look to Jesus. As the song goes, stare full in his wonderful face. He is the true king who, who, who didn't grab power but lost power. Who didn't seek honor but gave up honor. Who didn't come to live, he came to die. That we might become kings and queens in him. And all of that's just on the other side of sight. And when that knowledge of God's love in Jesus Christ sinks in and penetrates your heart and your mind and your soul, it will liberate you. And you will avoid the failure of Saul. Now let's pray. Father, this is, a, um, this is both a sobering and a riveting section. Good news, bad news. And I pray that you would give us the grace to hear your word. I pray that you would give us the grace to respond. And now as we give to you, as we take the offering, and as we uh, honor you in worship with just a, a, a fraction of all that you have blessed us with. We do it because we love you. And we want to worship you. 
And we want to demonstrate that we believe you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And as we sing, God, as we continue to worship, as we sing, would you speak to us? Would you accept our praise as worship? For Jesus' sake, amen.